Amen. Thank you. Um, one of my favorite movies to watch every few years is uh, National Treasure with Nicolas Cage. I don't know if you all have seen it. It came out when I was uh, maybe in high, middle school, high school, something like that. I forget when. You can tell me later. But um, it, it's a movie, right? If you've seen it, if you've seen it you, you know, it's, it's a kind of a historian of sorts, Nicolas Cage. He's on a quest to find a massive treasure hidden by the founding fathers in the American Revolution. And it's a cool adventure, and there's some historical information, and they have to go and they have to steal, you know, important American documents that I have to hope are a little more carefully guarded than the movie shows. But um, twists and turns. But I think what made the movie so popular is definitely not Nicolas Cage, the actor. Um, but what made the movie so popular is the idea that most of us are at least attuned to that there's more to history than we think. There, there's more to history than what the facts tell us. People are obsessed about this. Uh, the idea that maybe our culture's cherished beliefs about uh, democracy or about liberty might be mistaken. The notion that, it, that there's a cover-up. And we're now coming to find out. This, this last week, you may have seen it. Thousands of documents relating to the assassination of JFK were released. But not all. Not all. There's still some that are hidden. And so... Uh, Maybe those are the secret ones that show that really it was the CIA who killed Kennedy or uh, the KGB. or It wasn't just a lone gunman on a grassy knoll. Um, other folks, of course, prefer to believe that aliens are at Roswell. The moon landing is a fake made by Walt Disney. All sorts of things. We all love conspiracy theories. 9-11 didn't happen. And uh, unfortunately, I think uh, it's around this time more so at Easter. I don't know why Easter, but more so at Easter than Christmas. I think people like babies being born. It's very cute. But at Christmas and Easter, folks begin to apply that conspiracy theory thinking to the Bible. Folks begin to apply that kind of thought to the Bible. We have this, we have this book. We have these New Testament books, 27 of them. And, and really, uh, are they all that you could be thinking of? Are they really the whole Christian story, the whole Christian kit and caboodle. People are drawn to thinking that maybe what we have here is a cover-up. It's a cover-up. Maybe there's a better story. And if we did just a little bit of work, if we were like Nicolas Cage in National Treasure, we went on a huge adventure, we went to far-off places, we could discover what really happened. Of course, the guy who kind of uh, has been made most famous by this about 20 years ago now is Dan Brown. You may have heard of his popular uh, thrillers. Personally, just from a literary angle, not really well written. But they had that key argument, the key argument that, uh, well, there were lost parts of the Bible. There were lost books of the Bible. And there's been really an obsession the last 20, 30, 40 years that there are left out Bible books, left out gospels, leftover books, that, that our collection of scripture books, what we call a cannon with one end, not two. The one with the two is shoot things. This is a, a uh, something different. Yeah, it shoots things, maybe. Something. Much more powerful. Very, very good, Greg. Um, but the, the idea is that, is that, look, what Christians have believed is really their New Testament for thousands of years is wrong. In fact, there are books in here that shouldn't be in here. 
And there are other books that should be stuck in here that we should really be reading to get the real Jesus. Don't you want the real Jesus? The authentic one, the true one. And, and so therefore, I mean, look, you know, don't you? That history is written by the winners. We, we cite that all the time. The, the, the only thing people know about history is that it's facts, as Henry Ford said, it's written by the winners. And so if, if we think that's history, then we're going to say, aha, this is just those fundamentalist Christians, those people who actually believe the Bible, they put together this book and they did it in the fourth century because the emperor Constantine told them to. This is just a, a bunch of dead people who believe in the Bible. They put it together and we actually have other possible Christianities out there. We have other versions of Christianity. This is why I've been saying the past few weeks that really there are 200 Gospels, so-called. Why do we have these four? Now, this question may not, may not trouble you, but I guarantee that if you were to talk over the dinner table at Christmas with your neighbors, with family members, something like this invariably comes up. It happens to me when I talk to my extended family. Um, it's, it's, of course, all the rage at the university level. It's been the rage for quite some time. I was taught it, and that was... 20, uh, that was, yeah, 18 years ago. So the question is, what if we have the wrong books? Or to put it differently, the question we're going to answer today is, the main question we're going to answer is, <clears throat> how can we as Christians have the right to say that these are the books that we should have and that they are given from God? How can we have the right to say that? Um, this kind of goes hand in glove with what we covered last week. So maybe I'll mention from a, a few moments uh, what, we did, what we did last week. We, we looked at the divine qualities of Scripture, their beauty, their harmony, their unity, and the fact that <clears throat> we can expect the New Testament apostles to believe in some sense that they were writing God's Word, they're writing Scripture. Okay, so that's kind of a two-second review. But let me tell you kind of the story. Let me tell you the story uh, that's given the the kind of the, the the narrative that's given today in the modern world about the Bible, about how, how we got the Bible books. First, we have to go back to 1945. 1945, there was a guy named Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali, not the boxer, not Cassius Clay. He was a shepherd in Egypt, and he was digging the ground, and his shovel hit something, something hard, and he dug it up, and it was a earth jar. It was a, a pottery jar. And he, he wondered for a few minutes, should I break it open? He was scared uh, because he was kind of a, a, a Muslim, a kind of a, a average Muslim Joe. He was worried that if he broke it, a genie might pop out like an Aladdin. But he, he overcame it. He overcame the, his, his fear. He broke the jar and he discovered books, 13 books. He really wanted treasure or gold, not really useful for a shepherd, but he had found treasure. He, he had stumbled upon what was actually one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of the 20th century. He had discovered what would become known as the Gnostic Gospels, so-called. 1945, Shepherd. A collection of books that, that have a very different Jesus than the one we have here. A very different version of Christianity than the one we have here. Most noteworthy, you may have heard of this one, was the uh, Gospel of Thomas. You can read it in about 20 minutes. 
very short. It's a bunch of sayings. It's a bizarre gospel. It's a weird gospel. It's a collection of sayings of Jesus. Some sound very similar. Some are taken almost verbatim from Mark or Luke or Matthew. But there's nothing about his birth, his death, his resurrection. It's less about how Christ is a Savior and more about how he gives you personal enlightenment. He says things like this, the kingdom is inside of you. He says things like this, know yourselves, then you will become known. Now, if if you're looking for a modern, cultural, American, alternative Jesus, this is a great gospel. And this is a great gospel that fits in very nicely with uh, many of the sensibilities of people who don't uh, want to come to these gospels. And so we're now told, you'll hear this um, if you talk to people, that really early Christians were totally confused about what books they had. There were all sorts of different options out there. Some Christians read certain books. The Orthodox read these books, and those mean conservative people. But other Christians, the more enlightened ones, had these Christians, had, had these books. And so you have this Jesus and that Jesus and all sorts of Jesus. And you can't really agree on any of this stuff because it was all out there. It was all mush. I mean, just like today, you know those Christians, they have 20,000 denominations. They're always confused, they're always fighting. That's the way it was back in the day. And the Gospel of Thomas was really just as popular as Matthew. And then what happens? The bully Emperor Constantine in the 4th century comes up and he says, I'm going to make the call. And he says, we're going to go with this option. And so the high-ranking church authorities, you know, those top-down elites, they imposed their orthodox Christianity and they suppressed the alternative cool Christianity that were out there. That's a very popular narrative. I've given it to you. It's, it sounds very cool, especially if you say it with a cool voice, but there's one huge problem with it. It's not true. One, one huge problem with it is it, it's, it's not true. Let me kind of go through here and give you um, some of the facts we have. When you look at the earliest evidence we have for the New Testament canon, the New Testament canon, canon, simply a word meaning kind of a measuring stick or a rod, kind of a, um, a, a bounded group of books. They settled on a core. The earliest Christians, as far as we can tell, settled on a core of 22 out of 27 that we have now, 22 books of 27. There were some disputed books. Usually these were James, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, and Jude. Now, if you think about what, what connects 2 and 3 John and Jude and 2 Peter and James, there's one thing that should stick out to you. They're smaller. Those are some of the smallest books we have in the New Testament. Now, why would the smallest books be the ones that are more disputed? Yeah, there's not a lot of information going. And think about it. If you're looking to cite something to prove your point, your chances are, odds are, you're not going to go to Jude. You're going to go to Matthew or you're going to go to Romans or whatever. They're smaller. You don't cite them as often. You don't study them as much. And so it's quite natural that, you know, by the, the, the year 150 A.D., you're only going to have these, uh, these kind of documents. It, it would take until the 300s for the all 27 to be, uh, to be generally resolved. Um, so there's a guy, and, and maybe one, one date you should know if you want to, 
is uh, 180 AD when Irenaeus, early church father, he, he, he kind of puts together 22 of the 27. And he says most notably, he says, look, the number of gospels we have is four. There cannot be more than four. There cannot be less than four. He says, here's our, here, here his arguments. There are four zones of the world in which people live. North, east, south, west. There are four main winds that blow around the world. The cherubim were four-faced. Therefore, there must be four... Look, you may not agree with that. I don't think those are great arguments for four Gospels. But bracket that off. His point is the Gospel canon in the mind of Irenaeus had been settled. There weren't 200 options he was picking from and saying, oh, these four. He, he had these four in mind. And it had long been settled. He, he was not saying something new at this point in time. And we can actually go back even further. There's a guy named Papias. I guess I can give you his name. In the early 100s, Papias, the bishop of Hierapolis, he receives Mark and Matthew as apostolic gospels. Mark containing Peter's teaching, Matthew containing Matthew's teaching. He knows of 1 Peter, 1 John, Revelation. And of course, if you look at 2 Peter 3.16, we have that we have before. 2 Peter 3.16. Peter says, Paul's letters are Scripture. So we have very early on in the New Testament documents a reference to Scripture and showing that Paul's letters were in circulation, not as private letters, but as the Word of God. What does all that mean? The point of this is simply that uh, Christians, properly speaking, were not engaged in a free-for-all. They were not in a disarray over the books they needed to read. Yes, not all the books were in there. There was fuzziness at the edges, which is what we should expect if we're talking about real people at real time in real ways. Yes, sir, Greg. Even though you're saying 22 was so pretty much settled, those others were in circulation mm -hmm. permeating Yes. real church. Yes. They just weren't as commonplace as the others. Yes. So it's not like in 300 all of a sudden out of the blue they pulled, they went through all these letters and you know like these, these were already being used in, in, in a lot of churches within the real church. Yeah. Great point. Elijah. To James. Yeah so um that there, there weren't so many so much as common objections as uncertainty about whether or not uh, they should be included. Um, I think part of the common objections were that they weren't always in use by everybody. Certain certain areas use them more than others. So it's funny because that, that that is a very common argument that's used. Um, so the, the the modern folks today will say, look. You have Paul's version of Jesus. You have James' version of Jesus. You have Peter's version of Jesus. And Meany Paul, who's an angry man, he pushed his view over, you know, James and Peter, and he won the day, and that's bad. Um, so that argument, I'm not an expert on it, but as far as I can tell, that's not the way they argued back in the day. That's actually imposing our, you know, Paul teaches salvation by grace, 
James teaches salvation by grace and works, which is, again, an erroneous argument. Um, and I can talk about that later if you want me to. But that's imposing our modern you know, doctrinal issues onto the ancient Christians where they really didn't have that, that distinction. Um, yeah, I mean, I, just to make an easy point, I could point to Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council where you actually have everybody getting together and James talks and Peter talks and there's a decision made and they're all in agreement. Even though they have debates. Yes, there are, real, there are differences, but the differences are often overblown. Greg, yes, sir. And which kind of brings that is so important too. If there is, like John was saying, the modern idea of Paul and influencing, Paul had almost nothing to say in Acts, which was written by the man who was his main writer, so to speak, uh, that God used, um, which is Luke. Yeah. Um, so it, it's you know it's fascinating where you can definitely see where that's the falseness of that modern argument because Paul is very, I mean, he's, he's almost non-existent other than the fact that he was kind of the source of bringing, hey, we need to talk about this subject. Mm -hmm. But you don't really hear him. At least in, in, the, in Acts 15, absolutely, yeah, you don't hear him talk too much. Not that he was in silent, but yeah. it's definitely not his position that carried the day, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, Greg. Um, so uh, what do we take away from this? I think we take away something very important, which is that contrary to what we we're taught, contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, for example, the earliest Christians are, did not uh, pick or choose books for the canon, right? The Emperor Constantine did not say, uh, I like this one, not that one. I like Luke, but not Thomas. You know, I like uh, Matthew, but not uh, the, the Shepherd of Hermas. He, he didn't, uh, that's not how it worked. It, it's very important um, to understand the difference between recognizing and picking. The church, the Council of Nicaea and everything else, wasn't so much in book. I mean, I, if you had to stretch it, if you had to put a gun to my head, I'd say, yes, they, they picked books. But the books they picked were the ones that were already in use. They recognized the books. They didn't give authority to the books. They acknowledged the books that already have it. To ask the early Christians why they chose these books is like asking you, why did you choose your parents? It only really makes sense. You didn't choose. It's kind of a nonsense question. You didn't choose your parents. They've been there from the start. They weren't so much picked as handed down to Christians. Um, now, there's another important implication, the fact that we have 22 out of 27 pretty much clearly from the get-go, which is there is a standard in play. There's a standard in play to make theological decisions about Jesus, about the church, about salvation, about Christian ethics. The theological trajectory for Christianity was already in place. It doesn't matter what you say about 3 John. I'm not going to diss 3 John. It's part of the canon. But comparatively, there's nothing in 3 John that you would say is radically different or represents a John version of Jesus that you don't find in the Gospel of John or in 1 John. But the point is that the 20 books you have, they, they give you the theological foundation that helps you to say later on, hey, uh, Gospel of Thomas, the Jesus there, who's, by the way, ladies, he hates gals. I'm sorry about that. That's something that the modern folks sometimes skip over. 
you know, this Gnostic Jesus says, uh, you know, Mary, literally, he says, Mary, you need to become like Peter. Because men can get in the kingdom of God. That's a point that sometimes is left out um, in, in modern versions. The, the simple point is that um, <clears throat> you have an orthodox foundation. Third, the popularity, the popularity of these Gospels. The writings of Thomas, the writings of these 200 other Gospels, they were not nearly as popular as we suppose. We currently have about 60 manuscripts in part or in whole of New Testament writings from the second century. Matthew, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Hebrew, Revelation. The most popular is John, the Gospel, 18 manuscripts. In contrast, we have a total of only 17 manuscripts from apocryphal writings, the Gospel of Peter, Mary, uh, Gospel of Thomas, more. Uh, Thomas has the most with just with just three copies. The point is, the number of manuscripts we have in the canon outnumbers these writings, the Gnostic Gospels, by a ratio almost four to one. In fact, we have more copies of John from this period than all of the Gnostic Gospels combined. Therefore, we have no real reason to think that these alternative texts were spread very far. In fact, uh, they're mostly in Egypt. Egypt was kind of the, uh, the Berkeley of the early Christian church, no offense to, uh, to, to other parts of California. Uh, it, it, it was the Austin, if I want to be self-critical of my Texas heritage, it was the Austin of the uh, early Christian church. Um, we know that as well because of the popularity of the books that were quoted. This is a, a key way to figure out what things are popular. For example, how do we know that John 3.16 is one of the most popular verses today? You see it all over the place. Everybody quotes it. It's on signs in the football games. And so, as a test case, we can look at the early Christian writers, the early church fathers, and say, what did they quote? Did they quote the Gospel of Thomas all over the place? Well, when you read through somebody like Clement of Alexandria, just for one example, he, the intellectual giant, well-read, he liked to cite a lot of Christian and non-Christian sources. So if anybody's going to be playing up the Gospel of Thomas or something like that, it would be Clement. And, and he would cite some other uh, of these Gospels from time to time. He would cite the Gospel of the Egyptians, for example. I've not read that one. I don't know what it is, but he would cite it. But here's the key. He cites apocryphal Gospels in his writings a total of 16 times. He cites the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew itself, 757 times. Luke 402, John 331, you see the point. The apocryphal Gospels, therefore, these so-called Gnostic Gospels, are barely a blip on the radar for the most, one of the most well-read guys of his age, from one of the smartest, you know, most uh, knowledgeable, who was open-minded, if you will. Uh, Ivy League professor of his day. The point is that uh, alternative Gospels were never really contenders to begin with. They weren't really contenders for a spot in the canon at all. Um, they may sound cool, it may be fascinating, they may sound intriguing, but they're not nearly uh, 
as popular as we might think. Any questions on any of that so far? Okay, so what, what makes a difference? What, what, what allowed the Christians to recognize, hey, these 22 and not those other ones? Why did they quote these so much and not the Gospel of Thomas? Well, don't forget what we chatted about before. I forget which we've chatted about this, but you recall what Christ says. My sheep know my voice. They hear me. They follow me. Christians recognize that these books had a divine authority. They heard the voice of their Savior in them. They were sheep following their Master's voice. More to the point, that's not going to convince anybody that's not a Christian, by the way. I'm just making the point. That's not, a, that's not an evangelistic argument. That's just an argument that Christians will hear the voice of their Master. But part of what made a person believe a book is from God is whether the author is in a place, the human author is in a place to speak for God. Part of what makes you think that this, this is the Word of God as if Paul knew God in some way, shape, or form. And those people would need a special divine office. We call it an apostle. And so the earliest Christians would regard as authoritative those books which had been written by the apostles. They were unique. They, built, they bore the authority of Christ. Now, if that's true, that means the authority of these books is not added on later. It's not later determined by the church or by a Christian group or by a person. Oh, these were, um, these were voted on in the 3rd century or the 4th century, and therefore they became apostolic. No, no, no. These books bore authority because they were inherently apostolic. And this explains, of course, why uh, some Gospels were not entered into the canon. The Shepherd of Hermas has something to do with an apostle. It was very popular. It was, it was read a lot. It's a book that's out there. But it was written after the apostles' time. It could never be a candidate for the canon because it was not apostolic. Now, the last thing I'll say is that a lot of folks in this conversation, at least on, the, on this one topic, and then we'll move on to a second topic, um, a lot of folks in the, in the conversation forget the Old Testament. A lot of folks in this conversation ignore the reality of the Old Testament canon that was already there. By the time of Jesus, Josephus, the Jewish historian, offers a list of 22 Old Testament books accepted by the Jews, which matches our current 39-book collection. Because, for example, they viewed the minor prophets, 12 of them, as one book. So 22 can equal 39 in that way. And therefore, Josephus says, let me quote to you, For although long ages have now passed, no one has ventured to add or remove or alter a syllable. You can look at Philo, you can look at others. Um, and, of course, more importantly, you can look at the New Testament. How does Jesus Christ treat the Old Testament? We say, you know, well, there's a group of Jews over here, they say this thing, but I'm telling you, uh, that I go with the Sadducees. I prefer the Essenes. Those are my people. No, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't go that route. He doesn't go that route. Um, even though he had many disagreements with the Jewish leaders of his day, there is never an indication that he disagreed over which books were Scripture with the Pharisees. He calls them out all the time, but there, there's never an argument 
I like Leviticus and y'all don't. It's not an argument he ever deploys. His argument is you misunderstand Leviticus or Deuteronomy or whatever. Now, last thing before I move on is the question of the intertestamental literature or the Apocrypha. Um, some of y'all may have Bibles that include this. The Roman Catholics love it. Um, I have a couple of Bibles that include them. Um, you know, these are the books of Bell and the Dragon, Maccabees, Edris, Tobit, Judith, Baruch. Uh, they're written between the 3rd century B.C., the 1st century A.D. They're preserved in Greek. Uh, the Roman Catholics added them to the canon in the Council of Trent in the 1500s. What do we make of them? Uh, well, they were known by the Jews, but none of the Jews that we know of counted them as Scripture. They were not part of the Old Testament canon. And perhaps most importantly, no New Testament author, most of whom were Jews, cites even a single book from the Apocrypha as Scripture. That's one of the reasons why we believe the Old Testament should be restricted to its th current 39-book collection. That's the canon of Christ. The canon of Christ. So that's, that's a little discussion of kind of the history behind the canon. Um, I have a chart that we'll go through. Yeah, it, it, it's never a Sunday, a Sunday school class with me unless there's at least one time where we have a chart. This is chart day. Congratulations. Um, but before we get to the chart, any questions while I stall by erasing? Very good, Jim. Yeah, that's great. I was wondering if somebody would bring that up. Yeah, that's like the, that's the, that's the other big archaeological discovery. Um, <clears throat> what you have there are actually copies, uh, fragments of Old Testament books. That was a kind of another a group of Jews in the, around the time of Jesus, near the time of Jesus. Um, pretty hardcore, pretty intense, legalistic in some ways. Uh, their versions of the Old Testament documents are similar in some ways. They're shorter in other ways. Uh, but we can compare with, with, with other, other parts they have. They do not have... Um, yeah, yeah that, that's all I'll say about that for now. It's a good question, Jim. Ah, glad you brought that up. Any other questions? All right, so now I have a chart. So I've, I've talked a lot about the canon, and uh, because we're Christians, we, 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 kinda, we, we believe this. But um, <clears throat> we need to ask this question. Um, can we adequately account for the knowledge that we claim to have? Can we adequately account for the canon? Can we account for the fact that uh, we, as Christians, have enough knowledge to say these are the canon? So if I were to ask you, how do you know this is the canon? Well, you can give some of the facts I've given before, facts of history, but is that it? Are we just here to kind of debate history? I think that there are, there are three ways, um, three models that folks have used to tell us how the Bible became the Bible. Three models. Here's a chart. Three authorities that have been used over time. And the first is the church or the, the Christian community. This is what I've been mentioning from time to time. The, the church approves and constitutes the canon. The church is the authority 
what are the pros of this approach? And I'll give, of course, the cons and then uh, an example. One example of this is the uh, Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholics will argue that the, uh, what they call the magisterium, that is the Pope and the collection of bishops, um, they have the right to determine what is Scripture. Now, there are other areas in which they, they kind of qualify that, but you look at the Second Vatican Council, and I can give the details later on. Uh, they, this is what the Roman Catholic Church, Church says. The magisterium has the right. The church determines Scripture. The church tells you what the Bible is. <clears throat> now, what are the pros of this, of, of this idea? The pros of this idea that the church, in some way, shape, or form, has authority to tell us what books are in the Bible is that it does take into account the reality of God's providence, that God provides and builds His church, that God does use Christians, not just individually, but together as a corporate body, that God does use history. He uses the debates. You see this, of course, and we already mentioned Acts 15, but you see this in the councils of the church. There were clear debates over Christ. Who is he over the Trinity? What is the Trinity? What does it mean? We say God is triune. There were debates about these topics. Is that wrong that there were debates? It's wrong there were debates only if you think that God continues to inspire certain Christians every day with perfect knowledge. The point I'm making is that um, we believe this is the word of God. I don't believe that the, the thoughts that I have uh, yesterday are the Word of God. The theological thoughts that I may have on a given day are not the Word of God perfectly given. In other words, we believe, and we'll get to this in a later class, that the, the canon is closed. There's no new revelation in that way from God. This is the error, for example, of those who argue that the King James Version is the only uh, correct or inspired version of God's word. It has to. They have to argue that um, the translators in 1611 were inspired by the Spirit to perfectly translate uh, without any error, and uh, that's that's a huge problem, as Greg's uh, face can can tell you right now. Um, now, therefore, we have to trust God's providence to expose the church to its books, to the books it has to receive as canonical. Second. Now, and then, now the cons here, I suppose. Let me give you the cons before, before we move on. Um, <clears throat> which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which came first, the church or the word? To put it on a fine point, does the church create the Bible or does the Bible create the church? This is the foundational question. Does the church create the Bible? The Christian community create the Bible? You know, Paul's group, they create the Bible. Or does the Word of God actually have power to create the church? And we would argue very strongly that the church is a creature of the Word. I mean, the very opening chapters of the Bible tell us that God creates by His powerful Word. Um, Second question. Second 
point, perhaps. Authority. History. History can guide us. History can tell us which parts of the Bible are really authentic. Where is the real Jesus? This is the, uh, the red-letter Jesus. You know the red-letter Jesus? This is a kind of group of Christians. I think uh, Tony Campolo, maybe. Other names. I'm just making up. A, I'm not making up a name, but I think he's a part of it. It's a group of Christians who believe the real Jesus is the red-letter one. Just the ones that he speaks. Everything else is kind of a lesser canon, a less authoritative. We want the real Jesus. Uh, and the idea, uh, very popular these days, is that if we apply external, rational criteria, we can determine which parts of the Bible are real. Now, there's a sense in which this is very positive, because this is what, in some ways, happened in the early church. The early church, as I already mentioned, they applied the, uh, the criteria of apostolicity. Did an apostle write it? That's, that's important. They applied universality. Was it universal? As Greg mentioned, right? Did Christians in Greece and Spain and Britain and Egypt, did they all read the Gospel of John? Yes, they did. They all didn't read the Gospel of Thomas, though. But they all read these. And did they all read it across time? Right? Uh, not just in the 3rd century, but in the 2nd century. Yes, they did. So there's a sense in which it's appropriate to, to, <clears throat> to argue that the canonical books are apostolic. They're the result of God giving his revelation to these guys. They were universal. They were recognized by Christians at all times in all places. Now, the negative of this is what I was taught in uh, college. The negative version of this um, you see it in a place like the Jesus Seminar. It's very popular. Maybe you've never heard of it. But please don't, don't go research it. It's silly. But um, a bunch of scholars, historians, archaeologists, New Testament scholars get together and uh, they vote on which sayings of Jesus are authentic. And they have certain criteria they use. I'll give you one. The criterion of dissimilarity. That's a fancy word for saying, here it is in short, we can know what Jesus really said if two things are true. One, it can't be Jewish. We can know it's really Jesus if it's not Jewish and if it's not Christian. This is, one of, this is what the modern historians, that when they look at the New Testament, they say, which ones were really real? Of course, this also denies God. But, but, but think about this criterion. You see any problems with that one? We can know something is truly, authentically part of Jesus' teaching, this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, if it's not Jewish and it's not like the early church, if it's different from both of those things. You see any issues with that? Consideration of total depravity? Probably not. <laughs> yeah, not, not, not too much. Not, not, not too much. But Greg, you hit, you hit a good point, right? Uh, who says they're right? right? Who, who gives them the power to make these kind of decisions? Very good point. Um, I think, secondly, think about who Jesus was. Jesus is a Jew. Wouldn't you expect him to have Jewish beliefs? 
He says he's the Messiah. He says he creates the church. Wouldn't you expect the Christian church to have Jesus' beliefs? You see, the criterion itself is a very silly criterion. It expects something of Jesus that he, he, would, not, he would not say. Um, now, <clears throat> lastly, the third authority that, that, that uh, can be used is the self, the sovereign self, me, myself, and I. I read the Bible, you read the Bible, and you recognize these books are from God. I know because they've changed my life. You give your testimony. This is what we do. You say, Jesus changed my life because I read his word. This must be God's word. Now, the real positive here is the fact that it takes seriously the divine word. You see this, for example, in the, uh, the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. How do you know the Bible is the word of God? I feel a burning in my bosom when I read it. I feel warm and fuzzy. I believe it. Now, we'll cover that uh, in more detail in a few weeks, but there is something true and important here. The Spirit does open our eyes to receive the Word. However, every three months or so, I get a letter in the mail addressed to me here at the church. Maybe six months, twice a year. It always tells me, it's a letter, it's usually written, uh, a lot of words. It always tells me that if I don't immediately start teaching on Revelation, bad things will happen. If I don't immediately start teaching the fact that uh, these are the end times, and we can tell it because I've looked at the newspapers and here, here are the articles. If I don't immediately start believing that and teaching that, I will be in serious peril. And the argument used is, God spoke to me. God told me these things. The Spirit spoke to me these things. In other words, I know that this is the Word of God because the Spirit has spoken to me. And we don't have time to get into the ins and outs of that, but you can see the, the issues. Um, I hate to put the word wacky up here, but wacky Christian. That's the issue with this one. That's a con. With If you just take this, Wackiness occurs by itself. Now, the last thing I want to point out here, and it's what we've been discussing uh, the last couple of weeks, is there's actually a fourth authority. These are all okay helps. These are all okay secondary authorities. But the ultimate, the ultimate reason, it's not going to convince your non-Christian friends. This is, not, this is inside baseball. This is inside baseball for Christians. The ultimate reason we can believe the Word of God is the Word of God is the fact that the word is self-authenticating. The word authenticates itself. The Bible, the canon, the word of God is the only thing that has the ability to demonstrate that it's the word of God. It, it, in other words, God's word has the right to say, here's my limit. God has the right to say, this is my revelation. Here it is. That's it. No more. He has the right to say there's more if he wants to, but, but he has the right to limit it as, as well. And so the last authority really that is above all these is that the word of God is self-authenticating. Uh, I, would, I would direct you to what we've been discussing over the last couple of weeks from more, uh, more biblical evidence of that. Um, the point is this. 
Can the Bible demonstrate its own divinity or not? If you look at the church, no, you need the church to tell you it's, it's the word of God. You, the, the Pope has to tell you it's God's word. It's not intrinsically God's word. Look at history. You have to let historians tell you. Maybe they're good Christian historians. Maybe they're not good Christian historians, but they're still historians. You have to let them tell you which books have the attributes or which ones don't have the attributes. Or the self. I'm the judge now of the canon of God's word. And neither of these, none of these, none of these actually can say the books of the Bible have divine authority because they have divine authority because they come from God. Now, like I said, that, that's, a, that's a circular argument. That's not, a, that's not an argument you want to use to speak with non-Christians. This is inside baseball. We're saying here, how can you trust as a Christian that these are from God? Because you know God. You know what kind of God he is. And this is given to you in, in his word. Yes, sir. I'll give you the last word, Elijah. Uh, by the time you get to belief, you're way any louder than self-authenticating. But by what extent, obviously there is some bridge that takes you to a point where this argument is successful. You just said inside your baseball. Uh, and these secondary authorities are insufficient, each of them. Uh, so there's some causal connection between, is it regeneration? Yeah, and I would say I would say it only has to be because here's the thing: the natural man we know, Paul says, natural man cannot perceive the things of the spirit. Right? It's only the spiritual man who can perceive the work of the spirit. And so I, I would say that the, the closest, if you, want to, if you want to pin me down, the one that comes the closest might be uh, the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, but unmoored from other things and unmoored from uh, the the canon as self-authenticating, you're going to tend to be wacky. Well, that's why that's why my point is that you shouldn't really use this. This is not an apologetic point. It's really a point about the on you want to get to, about the ontology of the canon. What is the Bible? You know, and, and if, if you want to use it kind of as an evangelistic move, I mean, I can just say, well, that's a circular argument. Now, I could respond to that by saying it's not visually circular, but that's we're not here to get into velocity. Um, we can chat about that off air. Any other comments or questions? I said Elijah will be the last one, so I'll stick with that. Let me close us in prayer. Thank you all for your time. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you that you do give us your word, that you do provide it uh, even through history. You provide it through uh, men and women like us. And yet we thank you that you have uh, given gifts to your church, including the gifts of the apostles, that you have given your word uh, to these men of old. We pray that we would trust and rely upon your Bible, not because we can even rationally think it through or not because we have a really good experience, you know, decades ago, but because it's you. We hear the voice of our shepherd and we, your sheep, follow you. We pray as we follow you this morning, we would come to the real Jesus Christ. You would show us yourself once more, as you always do, in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.